Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Emma Fabreguet and Jen Marcocci. For today's wrap-up, we're talking about the resurgence of the Italian mafia, Breonna Taylor's death, US Immigration Detention Center malpractices, and Australia's relationship with China. Let's get into it. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today was how COVID-19 has actually helped the Italian mafia. Italy was one of the first hard-hit nations of the world by COVID-19, and by March 10th, it had reported nearly 9,000 cases. Under pressure to limit the spread of the virus through their prisons, a decision was made to release over 200 mafia gang members, reversing decades of work from police and investigators in getting them there in the first place. The release of mafia gang members during a time of severe economic downturn has made lower socioeconomic communities susceptible to turning towards mobs for support. The crime syndicate, Camorra Mafia, is one of the most well-known gangs in Italy and most violent, using the post-lockdown vacuum as an opportunity for resurgence. How are they using the post-lockdown vacuum? So to regain lost territory from the past years, gang members have been approaching vulnerable community members with economic incentives greater than those provided by Italy's civil service efforts. This has come in the forms of handing out food parcels or 50 euro bills in return for the community support and eventually a return in favour pretty much like a debt. The mafia has also invested in business opportunities and business vacuums, such as selling masks and other necessities, thus allowing their money to be laundered in increasingly covert ways. However, police were able to seize some masks manufactured by the Camorra Mafia and gave it to medical experts. The medical experts examined these and warned that these masks did not provide any proper protection from COVID-19 and were therefore useless, a mistake that Italy cannot afford considering its tragic rate of cases. They went so far as to say that it could increase coronavirus cases because you would think that you're being protected when somebody's wearing a mask. But if it's a mask that they've bought from one of the gang members and you're approaching closer than you should be because you think you're being protected, you're actually not. And there it's easier to actually transmit the virus. Yeah, that's crazy. So what has the government done to try and counter the mafia? So despite the government's efforts to increase economic support after the lockdown, which was over $400 billion, many Italians were unable to actually access any of these benefits. Some suggested that the bureaucratic system was way too complex to even apply for assistance, while over 30 million couldn't even apply as they were not eligible as their work is off the books. So pretty much they're getting paid by cash and it's not being taxed. So they couldn't even apply for a benefit because they didn't have a proper job before the lockdown, even though they did. So these circumstances provided pretty much fertile grounds for organized crime to come in and gain support for those that felt that they were being unseen or forgotten by the government. By making it easy to access personal loans and basic needs, they built a growing relationship and community within, making it harder for police to intervene or even seem kind of like the good guys. It's important to note, however, that the Camorra Mafia and other gangs alike, although gain support due to the look of their humanitarian support, such as food parcels and just handing out money, it quickly does go violent and sour. For their gangs to survive, they obviously need a constant flow of money. And that constant flow of money comes from the people that they once helped. They expect payment as debt paid by people they have lended to, which if it's not paid in time, it quickly becomes violent. This is seen as people going to people's houses, threatening their kids, following around their loved ones, and even leading to murder. Not to mention the violence that goes between gangs and people that get caught in between. See, extortion, drug trafficking and murder are some of the few activities that gangs partake in and that the government has been chasing hundreds of gang members to put away. 
only to have been released during the most vulnerable time. Once again, Italy starting at basics to return to tracking these members in the first place and regain once again control over its cities. That's crazy. Talking about control over cities, let's move to Australia balancing its relationship with China. Until recently, Australia has enjoyed almost 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth, and a big part of it has been their relationship with China. Yet this has become strained recently between issues such as Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and protesters in Hong Kong. It's made it harder for Australia to maintain positive diplomacy with China and China shows no signs of backing down. So how important is China to the Australian economy? Well, Bloomberg has found that Australia is the most dependent country on China in the developed world. Education, tourism and agriculture are the major industries Australia relied on China to contribute to. Australia's mining boom fueled China's growth, so trading is actually a big reason why we avoided the 2008 global recession as well, which wreaked a lot of damage around the world. What has Australia's relationship been like with China during those years of trading growth? It was really strong and primarily focused in economics, as China is seen as a rising power and economy, which Australia wanted to tap into, such as through projects known as the Age of Century Project, and there were other various policies created to help tap into that benefit so Australia could gain. Yet, this started to shift in the past couple of years, especially when Xi Jinping, the now president of the People's Republic of China, came to power. So what exactly has started to change? Well, over time, there has been growing concerns about the direction of China under Xi's direction. He came into power in 2012, and since then, China has become more assertive and authoritarian. President Xi has overseen a tightening of power. He has even entrenched changes to term limits to his own power. And we have also seen the crackdown on protesters in Hong Kong, as well as the new strict overreaching national security law that was introduced. And there are very disturbing reports from Xinjiang and treatments of Uyghur Muslims, not to mention China's actions in the South China Sea by militarizing and creating artificial islands to gain advantages in the region, which all culminates to something so alarming. Very alarming. So has that changed the relationship between Australia and China then? Well, it's meant that things have started to become a lot more complex as Australia is straddling our relationship between the US and China And the U.S. is a massive partner for us as a defense and security ally. Yet our relationship with China is hugely important for our economy. Some people believe that Australia's relationship with China can't go back to what it was a few years ago, just economically focused. As the human rights concerns were usually handed quietly and behind the scenes, yet that's not really tenable anymore as concerns grow stronger and are harder to keep to the side. Australia's diplomacy with China is also thought to not have been dealt with as delicately as some commentators would have wanted. For instance, Australia has angered China in a number of ways recently. One of the key turning points was the foreign interference laws in 2017 that were introduced by Malcolm Turnbull. They expanded the definition of espionage and cracked down on foreign political donations and introduced a foreign influence transparency register so people could actively know what interferences may be coming from foreign sources. And China felt that these laws were directly aimed at it, and Malcolm even said that China was our greatest threat at the time. Turnbull also banned Huawei 5G network, which was considered to be a high-risk vendor by Australia's security agency, which angered China. This was ahead of a few countries, as there were concerns about the information that the network would share to the Chinese government. 
So how do we balance the prosperity of Australia against this? Do we have a plan? Well, the government says it is negotiating free trade agreements with other countries. They have signed FTAs with Indonesia, South Korea and Japan in recent years, which was meant to be alongside our agreements with China and herald unprecedented growth. And currently, Australia is negotiating with India, UK and Europe. But this won't happen quickly. To give you an example of how hard it is to make a difference, India is actually known as kind of a good substitute for trading with China. But Australia's goal is to send an annual $45 billion of exports to India by 2045. Yet if you compare this to our recent trading with China, Australia actually sold $140 billion to China last year. So there are some people who think that broader strategy should have been considered before Australia took a lead on some of the political issues, including our leading position on a COVID inquiry into China, because diversifying trade does not happen overnight. Yet in the meantime, how Australia manages the change to trade will have an impact across the board. Please be aware that the following story contains a broad discussion around the subject of FGM, which some listeners may find distressing. Skip to minute 11 to go to the next story. That's so interesting. Well, while we're on the topic of turbulent relationships, on the 22nd of September, Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard announced that Mexico is currently undergoing investigations on the U.S. migrant detention centers under claims by six Mexican women to have allegedly been sterilized. You see, a whistleblower from the Immigration of Customs Enforcement, or better known as ICE, has allegedly reported that hysterectomies are being performed with a lack of proper consent and information on immigrants. If found to be true, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has suggested his government would take legal actions against the U.S. for severe human rights violations, and rightly so. This has received support from over 100 members of the U.S. Congress to undergo intensive investigations on the practices of detention centres in the U.S. How certain are we about these rumours? I'd say at the moment, pretty uncertain. These are serious allegations and if found to be true, will surely break havoc between Mexico's and the U.S.'s close relationship, and rightly so. To sterilise a woman without her consent is a life-changing and traumatising breach of human rights and once again would suggest the ongoing battle of women in the ownership of their own bodies. But again, these claims remain uncertain and ICE has, of course, been quick to make note of it, telling BBC that it should be treated with scepticism. Yeah, I guess so. So what do we know about the whistleblower? So the whistleblower is a former nurse at the private Irwin Country Detention Centre in Georgia. Her name's Dawn Wooten. Once she came forward, she depicted a shocking image of of the happenings within the detention centre, going so far as to call one of the doctors that performed hysterectomies as the uterus collector, due to the amount of procedures he did on immigrants. She emphasized that most of the procedures were being done on Spanish-speaking immigrants who had limited understanding of English. While Wooden and other nurses have confirmed that several hysterectomies have been performed during their time at work, ISIS data of the Irwin Country Detention Center only reports two procedures in the last two years. At this stage, the verdict is still out for jury, but it can't hurt for more intensive investigations to be made at U.S. detention centers examining their practices and ensuring that immigrants are being respected and taken care of. Now talking about verdicts and jury, we can move to 
Brianna Taylor's death. Recently, the jury has been weighing up evidence on one of America's most contentious police shootings. The jury declined to bring charges against two of the officers that shot Brianna Taylor. Last week, it was announced whether any of the three officers which were at the scene when Brianna Taylor was killed would be charged. There was a lot of anticipation for the announcement by the Attorney General. Last week, Brianna Taylor's mother received $12 million for the settlement and a number of police reforms were made around the city. Yet the family, advocates and supporters made it very clear that nothing short of charging all three officers with murder for Brianna Taylor's death would amount to justice. So what was being weighed up by the jury? Well, the lawyer experts were saying that they thought that the Attorney General was in a tough position. Based on the fact that when the officers entered the home, her boyfriend, Kenny Walker, mistook the police as intruders and opened fire, shooting one of the police officers. Because of that dynamic, the fact that the officers shot back and killed her would be protected under Kentucky's Self-Defense Act. So on one hand, you have Brianna Taylor's supporters saying that justice will be served through charging the men that killed her. Yet on the other hand, you have lawyers saying that it's extremely unlikely that it will happen because of the self-defense statute. So what happened next? Well, Brianna Taylor's family wasn't just saying that they should be formally charged, but that they should also be indicted for murder and manslaughter. And we know that when the grand jury was deliberating, there were signs of preparations for a clash within the city. The mayor's office declared a state of emergency. The police department released that no officers were going to be given vacation time and there were murmurs that the National Guard might be deployed and the Kentucky State Police might be sent in. Meanwhile, ever-growing cordon around the city square, which is known as the nucleus for the protest, has been going on in the city every day for the last 100 days. The police had put up concrete barriers. They brought in dump trucks to block off the streets. They also put up chain link fences around the area to make it impossible to get through or to use as a meeting point. Meanwhile, the federal courts announced that they would be closing and then all the other courts followed suit. It seems that everyone was prepared for the announcement and knew what the announcement would actually be. Yeah, especially downtown, as even hotels were boarding up and government offices after government offices were closing. The downtown corridor is actually the heart of where the protests have been which is a reflection of the fact that more and more people were actually starting to come to these protests and also with weapons. Yeah, it's good to note that this is an open carry state, so it is legal to carry weapons. There is a growing sense that they were heading towards some sort of clash and that that clash could be violent. When was the announcement made and what was it? So last Wednesday, the announcement was made at 1.30pm in Frankfurt. The city had been effectively locked down. The Attorney General came out and said that Brianna Taylor's death was a tragedy, yet he went on to say that the police officers would not be charged for murder or manslaughter because they had a search warrant, so their presence was firstly legal. Two of the officers were justified in self-defense, which means the criminal charges were dropped. The third officer, however, on the night of Brianna Taylor's death, actually spun around and ran outside into the parking lot and started shooting into the home erratically. And the windows he was shooting at had the blinds drawn. So the Attorney General then explained that that officer would be charged with three counts of wanted endangerment, as the bullets that went into Brianna Taylor's home and the apartment behind it shows that endangerment factor. He explained something crucial that wasn't known before. That officer's bullets 
did not actually hit Brianna Taylor because forensics found that it was actually one of the police officers that was in the hallway who hit Brianna Taylor. This is crucial because it means that her death is justified in that self-defense under the law. You could even tell that the Attorney General showed signs of agonizing over the verdict. As he even said, sometimes the law is inadequate and this is a tragedy. And he recognized that not everyone would be satisfied. The Attorney General ended his speech by posing a question to the people watching. Will you accept this even if you don't like the outcome? Or will you react with anger and possibly violence? And so how did people react? By the police creating barricades around the square, there wasn't a central meeting point for the protesters. So as protests ensued, they fanned out across Louisville. Reports were made that the protesters were actually sobbing and anger was clearly mounting. And for the first part of the day, they were chanting as they walked. Then you started to see small disturbances, such as windows being broken. They kept marching and being dispersed. Things intensified when the sun went down. There was even some shots fired out in the state and it was later verified that two police officers had been shot. And what were people saying about the grand jury? From reports on the ground versus the media, it was showing that there was a pretty big gap between the facts that the media had found and what the protesters believed. But this is a narrative that has become much more bigger than the facts of the case because on one hand, also the departments were quite stingy with releasing facts about the case. But Bianca Taylor's name is now a byword for racial injustice and has spread across America and become bigger than the facts of the case. She is now a symbol as a black woman killed by white cops. Yeah, that's very well said. Thanks for listening to our bi-monthly news wrap-up and make sure to check in for more upcoming trailblazers and in-depth episodes. Bye!